talk about one of the most difficult things for a human being to do. And each of us has had many opportunities to do this throughout the course of our lives. You've perhaps already done this this morning. And throughout our lives, each of us has also asked other people to do this difficult thing. And so if you had to guess, you know, what would you throw out there? What's the difficult thing I'm talking about? Anybody have a guess? Forgiveness. Wow, okay. Well, Larry, would you, would you read my notes before we started here or something? Oh, you're a plant. I uh, gave you $5 to say that. But forgiveness, that's the thing we're talking about today, or at least to start off with. And so think about someone uh, who has asked for your forgiveness recently. Perhaps they came to you and said something like, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And what did they do for which they needed forgiveness? What was that thing that they did? And were you able to say yes to them saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Maybe they didn't say all those words, but were you able to say, yes, I forgive you? How, and how hard was it to say yes? And if you're like me, sometimes that yes can come kind of easily. Somebody asks for forgiveness, and I can say, yes, I forgive you. Um, but other times, it, it can be really hard for me to forgive. It, when they're apologizing and they're asking for it in the moment, I want to actually say, yes, I forgive you. And sometimes I have to say, you know, I need some time, or I just need to you know, think a bit or pray a bit. It's sometimes harder to say yes than at other times, and I need to get in a place where I'm ready and willing and able to forgive. And so I want to explore a question together. Uh, we'll write it on the whiteboard. Of why is forgiveness so hard? Why is forgiveness so hard? Why is it a hard thing to do? And I'll just throw out some answers and I'll put it up on this board. Why is it so hard? Because uh, it's hard for us to admit that we're not perfect. Okay, so that would be, which person would that be? This person asking for forgiveness? Either, either way. Either one, okay. Margaret, I text, texted you. Okay, any other reason it's hard? It might involve uh, pain. Pain? Okay. Internal pain? Internal pain. So it's painful. Uh-huh. Internal pain. Could be external too. So you internal life or external. Okay. Requires humility. Requires humility to say I forgive you? Well, okay. in either direction. To ask or forgiveness. Or... Alright. What about it requires humility? Humility. What that? What about it requires humility? Humility is what I was wondering. Like, why? If I'm going to say I forgive you, what you know? Looks like uh, anybody can answer. But why does it require humility to say I forgive you? Because sometimes we're enjoying the anger towards okay. that person. <laughs> okay. We enjoy the anger towards that person. Or you feel like you deserve the anger. Or it feels like sometimes if you do say I um, do forgive you for that, it's almost like taking away your hurt of it, or like hmm. almost saying, okay, what you did, I forget. And sometimes to forgive something, there's still there's that pain of whatever it was. Does that make sense? So you said it was uh, we have to forget it or like let it go kind of yeah, thing, it and it's kind of hard to let it go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you got to like give up. Which might feel like is your rights. I was doing that thing too. It costs. It costs you something. And I think it's that your rights. That's what I have a right to be 
forgiven you. I no longer have that <laughs> that right or that, yeah. that thing that says I'm better than somebody else or I was offended and mm-hmm. I could ask for whatever payment or yeah. the, whatever the whatever is being forgiven, whether it's uh, um, a right of retribution or a right of payment or whatever the offense yeah. was. Okay, so we so it's costly uh, because we have to give up rights, we have to let go, um, we're, we have to let go of the anger or resentment or the bitterness. It's hard to require humility. We have to not be on our kind of like you're saying, not comparing ourselves or being on our high horse of like, no, you you deserve this, and uh, it can be painful because what they've done and what we're feeling is internal or external, and uh, oh, it's supposed to be hard to perfect. You know, yeah, that kind of connects with humility is that if we're going to forgive them, we have to say, in a way, we're kind of saying, well, yeah, there's things I've done wrong too, and I need to be forgiven, so you aren't perfect, and I'm not either. Well, as we uh, are in the second week of Advent for the Christian cal- in the Christian calendar, um, Advent is a time of cel- to a preparation, preparation to celebrate Jesus' birth. And this Sunday and the next two Sundays, we're going to do this three-week series uh, called The Greatest Gift Exchange. And when we think about Christmas, we think about gifts, you know, both giving and receiving gifts. Uh, and the Bible talks about how what God has done for us is a gift. It's a, a giving, and we have to receive it. You know, the first Christmas 2,000 years ago, the reason we give gifts now today is a way to remember God gave us this greatest gift, and now we're being generous with each other. And God not only gives his beloved son as a gift to be received, but when we surrender to Jesus, there's another gift exchange that takes place in that Jesus gives something to us, and we give something to him. And uh, I'm curious if you... I would really be curious to hear what's the weirdest or worst gift you've been given, um, perhaps in like a Secret Santa thing or or a gift exchange. Um, But in those, there's kind of this one version where you can steal other people's gifts. Have you ever been in that where it's like you you open, like you have your names in a hat or something, and each person gets to grab a gift. You grab it, open it up, and it's like, okay, cool. But then later on, someone else can either choose to take a new gift or they can choose to take a gift from someone that's, already been open. It's kind of like you steal. And so you're not really giving gifts. It's almost like a little war you're fighting. And usually there's kind of a limit to how much you can spend. So everything's roughly the same value. But sometimes uh, there's a few gifts that are just better than the others because there's this, it's like, wow, they got, you bought them a phone. It's supposed to be a $25 limit. Or wow, you bought them this. Or even if it is equivalent in value monetarily, it's like, well, that gift is a lot better than this one that costs $25. And so at the end of like one of these gift exchanges where you're, you're taking gifts from other people, you might feel like, well, I'm kind of walking away with socks. And that person's walking away with, you know, I don't know, I can't think of, you know, $25 gift card to some place. And it's like, well, I don't really want socks. You know, there might be nice socks. I don't know how these cost $25. But somehow they did. And so you're like, I just want somebody else's gift. And in our gift exchange with Jesus, it's like a gift exchange gone horribly wrong where we walk away with the best thing we could ever get. And he walks away with you know, something gross and nasty that we found in the corner of our basement and then just threw it into a bag or something. And so it's like this bad gift exchange. And each week of this series, we're going to look at what do we exchange with Jesus? What does he give us? And what do we give him in this gift exchange with him? We're gonna, the verse we're focusing on is 2 Corinthians 
521 today. Uh, but the context is important for us to understand this verse. And Paul, this church, 2 Corinthians, is a, a letter written to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And Paul helped get this church started um, with the help of two other uh, Jewish people in around uh, 50 AD. In order to continue helping this church after he was gone, he sent several letters to them. And actually, there's four total that he wrote. Um, our, the two in our Bible, First and Second Corinthians, are actually Second and Fourth Corinthians. There's four letters sent, and these two letters in our Bible reference these other letters that were sent, but they've just been um, lost, and we don't have them. And what we know in these letters is that Paul had a rocky relationship with these people. At one point, most of the church had turned against him, and they were influenced by this group that came into town, or kind of saying, you know, Paul, he's kind of, you can't really trust him. He's not very impressive. Like, and they would say, he, he suffers way too much to be an apostle sent by the Lord Jesus. And just imagine that if, you know, since Katie and I moved here to start this church, if all of a sudden a group came in and turned you all against us, and you, you're all just don't trust me anymore, I don't think I have any integrity, you think he just doesn't live a very godly life, and how painful that would be for Katie and I, and then these letters are kind of like me emailing all of you, like, hey, here's how I'm thinking about this. This is what you need to do. This is what you, need to, you need to turn back and, and stop living and thinking this way. And so Paul is trying, uh, is talking to this church and trying to instruct them along. And by the time 2 Corinthians was written, um, most of them, through other letters and other visits of other people, had turned back to Paul. They repented of Okay, yeah, Paul, we've been acting wrongly. We shouldn't have turned against you like that. And so they've turned back from that. And so these people came to know Jesus through Paul, and yet they had this painful past. And the passage we're looking at today is about forgiveness and reconciliation. And so this is a very relevant and maybe even heated or loaded topic for Paul to be talking about with this church because of what's happened between them. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul calls himself an ambassador for Christ. Meaning that Paul sees Jesus as his Lord, as his King, and now he's living as a representative of Jesus, uh, doing his work on his behalf. And this is why Paul uh, puts such a high priority in the beginning of what we read to pleasing Jesus. I'm his ambassador, and so now I need to do what he has given me to do, the responsibilities he's given me. And he, he knows I'm going to report to Jesus uh, at the end of my life and tell him, this is, you know, this is how I've lived out what you told me to do. And Paul is not, he's not only motivated by that desire to please Jesus, but he also says he's motivated by the love of Jesus for him, the love of Christ for him. He says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. And some other translations say the love of Christ compels us. And maybe we would ask, okay, what does Paul think Jesus' love looks like? How has he experienced Jesus' love? Well, he continues in verse 14. He says, the love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so Paul sees Jesus' death as a demonstration of his love, both for him and for anyone who would trust in him. And in his love letters, Paul says, sometimes he says Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's also said Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. But he also in one spot says, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. And so Paul knows Jesus' great and deep love, not only for his church and God's people, but for him 
personally that Jesus loved him and gave himself up for him. And that love, uh, both for him and for other people, compels him. I need to tell people about Jesus. The love of Christ is controlling me. It's compelling me. This love has changed him. It grips him and compels him. And it's a, a controlling influence in his life. And he just said, I'll, I'm never going to be the same. This love that I have experienced now has changed how I live. And so I might ask, okay, well, he's Christ's ambassador, doing Christ's work on Christ's behalf. And so what sort of work does he do for King Jesus? In verses 16 through 21, Paul explains the work he does on Jesus' behalf. Knowing Jesus died for everyone, Paul says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And so when Paul first heard about Jesus, kind of on the surface of things, on the, you know, the flesh surface of things, the superficial assessment he had of him was, this guy is a fraud and a failure. I mean, he's claiming to be the Messiah. His followers are claiming he's the Messiah. But he died on a Roman cross. How in the world can he be the Messiah if he died a shameful death like that? That was Paul's initial reaction. But now, he had this experience with Jesus uh, coming to him personally, and it totally changed him. And so now he's convinced Jesus' death changed everything. Which is why, in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the view of world history in the Bible is that there's these two ages. There's the, the old age of the broken, cursed uh, creation that sin has ruined. And then there's the, the new age, or the age to come, where it's been renewed and repaired and all kind of put back how it's supposed to be. So there's, there's these two ages. And in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to God is one going to send his Messiah and he's going to bring in a new age where the, through his Messiah, through the Christ, God is going to renew this earth. He's going to repair this creation. It's going to make all things new. And so there's this view of these two ages. Uh, and the claim that the followers of Jesus were making was that because of Jesus, the future new age of restoration and renewal and repair and healing was already here in part, but not yet in full. It's kind of like the two ages, instead of being like, old age is gone, new age is here, it's more like there's a little overlap right now, that that new age is already here in part, but not in full. And I like to think, it's helpful for me to think about movie trailers, using a movie trailer as an illustration, and um, I like movie trailers, something I just like to watch time to time. It's like, what new movies are coming out? But a movie trailer is really about this future thing that's going to happen. A movie's going to come out. And the movie trailer comes uh, in our present time, looking forward to this future, and we watch it, and it gives us a taste of what is to come. The movie trailer isn't the whole movie, but it gives us a taste of what that future movie is going to be like. It's kind of like the future is breaking in and invading the present. And this is what it's like when God makes those who surrender to Jesus new. The movie of the future is that God is going to make all things new. And the movie trailer for that future is that he makes those who surrender to Jesus new. Behold, a new creation. He's making us new. And God is saying, I'm going to restore this whole thing, but I'm starting now in part with people who have trusted in Jesus. And this is helpfully referred to as the already, not yet aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is already here in part, but is not yet here 
in full. That new creation that's coming is already here in part, but it's not yet here in full. We await the fullness of the new age, even as we enjoy a taste of it now. New creation is already present in the old broken creation, but it's not yet here in full. And Paul is crystal clear about how about who is responsible for this transformation in someone's life. He says in verse 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God makes us into a new creation through Jesus Christ. And how does he do it through Jesus Christ? By reconciling people to himself through Jesus Christ. And the need for reconciliation implies a a problem, which is there's a broken relationship. Reconciliation is needed when a relationship has been broken, when somebody's sinned, when somebody's wronged the other person. And I don't know if you would think about what are... What are the problems you have in your life right now? And just be like, okay, here's all the things that I'm worried about, stressed about, here's what I have to do. And at any moment, the biggest problem in our life is not those things, all those things that we might worry about, but it's that we have a broken relationship with God. That is everyone's biggest problem in their life. And thanks be to God, if you've trusted in Jesus, you no longer have a broken relationship with God. The reality is that we have sinned against God. We've rebelled against Him. We've turned away from Him. And that means we have have a broken relationship. And broken people break things. That's why the whole creation is broken. Broken people break things. Our broken relationship with God is the source of all other brokenness. It's like we've become a channel of brokenness and curse into this world. And a broken relationship with God uh, means that we're going to break things. And a repaired relationship with God makes things new. So our broken relationship with God breaks things, but a repaired relationship with God makes things new. And the way to fix a broken relationship is through reconciliation. And verse 19 describes what God does to make reconciliation possible. It says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And trespasses uh, from, the, from the Old Testament are deliberate, intentional actions that break a commitment or break trust or break uh, a relationship. They are deliberate, intentional actions that break commitment or break trust. They aren't accidents or mistakes. Oh, we just messed up or I kind of like stumbled there or made this mistake. It's us knowing what we're supposed to do, knowing what God asks of us, knowing that this God says this is how we're going to live and in the moment we say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way. It's intentional and deliberate. And the only way we can be reconciled to God is if he doesn't count our trespasses against us. You know, think about someone in your life that you've had to forgive. The only way reconciliation would happen is all those hurtful things they did for you to say, I'm not going to count those things against you. And only God can bring reconciliation because only God can forgive us for our wrongs against him. And so how does God reconcile people to himself? In verses 18 and 19, Paul not only says that he has been reconciled to God, but that now uh, God has given he, Paul and his co-workers the ministry of reconciliation, and he's entrusted to them the message of reconciliation. And then he then draws this conclusion in verse 20. He says, Therefore, you know, since we have the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ, and Christ reconciles the world to God through his ambassadors, his representatives. Jesus' ambassadors have been given the ministry and the message of reconciliation, imploring people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Look, Jesus has died for everything you've done. Be reconciled to God. Your biggest problem is that you have a broken relationship with him and you can come and be reconciled to him. This is the work Paul does for King Jesus. He works as an ambassador on behalf of his king to implore people to be reconciled to God. But still, what makes reconciliation possible? Paul already said that God does it through Christ, but how? What has Christ done that it's through Christ? Is he just hanging out there, sitting on the side, being like, yeah, you can do it, stamp my name on it. No, verse 21, which is our key verse for today, tells us this. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what makes all of what Paul is talking about possible. This is, this is the linchpin. This is the foundation for reconciliation, which is the foundation for new creation. Reconciliation is the foundation for new creation, and this, uh, this verse is the foundation for reconciliation. Reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. And so first it tells us that Jesus was sinless. It says he knew no sin. Jesus never said no to God, and he never said yes to sin. He lived a perfect, spotless life without blemish. And yet, it says Jesus was made to be sin. And this verse puts us like in a court scene. And imagine you know, standing in a court, and your crimes have been clearly laid out. Uh, there's video footage of it. There's no kidding around it that... Yep, that was me, and maybe you even held up your driver's license. So it's like, yep, that was me, I committed those crimes. So your crimes are listed, and then the sentence, the penalty for those crimes is also read. And there's just no way getting around it, no denying it. You simply have to accept, I've been caught, and I have to accept the sentence for what I've done, the due punishment for my crimes. You're guilty as charged. And what happens in God's court is that Jesus, who's committed no crimes and deserves no punishment, takes our place. He's made to be sin, meaning he stands in the place of a sinner, in the place that we're supposed to be standing, you know, on the um, defendant's side or whatever. Like, he stands there. He says, no, you're going to move out of this. You're guilty as charged, but I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to take that sentence as if I am guilty as charged. He was made to be sin. And Paul's already said, Jesus died for the sake of others, meaning his death was not for him, it was for the sake of others. Jesus' death was the death of, of a sinner that deserved to be punished, but Jesus was not a sinner. And though Jesus deserved none of the penalty for being a sinner, he took upon the penalty himself uh, of being a sinner. And so think about this. God reconciles us to himself by not counting our trespasses against us. But why does he not count our trespasses against us? It's because instead of counting our trespasses against us, he counts them against someone else instead. In Romans 4, 5, Paul calls God the one who justifies 
the ungodly. To justify someone is to declare them righteous or to declare them innocent. And to condemn someone is to declare them guilty. And so the ungodly should never be justified. The guilty should never be declared righteous or innocent. The wicked, unrighteous, evil, selfish, ungodly, and righteous should never have the court judge in their favor. But that's exactly what God does. God judges in our favor. And how does he does that? do that? How can God judge in our favor when we are guilty as charged? Because even though Jesus was sinless, Jesus stood in our place and God judged against him so that God could judge in our favor. In the sight of God, Jesus was treated as a sinner so that in the sight of God, we may be treated as righteous. Jesus takes our condemnation and our guilt and he serves our sentence in our place. And God does not count our sins against us because he counted them against Jesus instead who took our place. And here's where the gift exchange comes in. Why did Jesus do this? What was the purpose? What was the result? Verse 21 says, So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reality is that we are unrighteous. We have lived for ourselves. We have rejected God, ignored God, rebelled against God. We've said no to God and we've said yes to sin. We've said yes to living for ourselves. And we've said yes to Satan. But what happened at the cross is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin in our place. He had no sin of his own to be punished for, but he took our punishment in our place instead of us. And Jesus took from us, he took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. That's the gift exchange gone wrong, is that we give him our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. And he takes the penalty in our place, and he breaks both the penalty, frees us from the penalty of our sin, and frees us from the power of it, that we now don't live for ourselves, but we live for him who died in our place. And so we're free from both the penalty and the power of sin. Now some people will object to this view of Jesus' death. I'm curious if any of you have heard um, anybody say uh, that view of Jesus' death is divine child abuse. Has anybody heard that phrase? Vince has heard it. So Some people say this is divine child abuse. So imagine dad is angry at us. He's going to take his anger out on us. But then older brother Jesus says, no, 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 no. He stops and says, no, no, don't hurt him, don't hurt him, no, please don't do this. And then now dad is mad at that child and takes it out on him. So some people say the cross is uh, God's mad at us, but then Jesus steps in and then God you know, takes his anger out on Jesus instead. And he's just abusing his son. God the Father abusing the son of God. But the problem with this is that this view sees Jesus as a third party to the situation. Because uh, reconciliation in a relationship requires forgiveness for the wrongs done. And forgiveness for the wrongs done requires that the person who was wronged pays for the wrongs themselves instead of the wrongdoer paying for them. And so when someone sits against, sins against God, only one of two people can pay for that sin, either God or the sinner. And there are only two parties involved. And so if I wronged Bob, either Bob pays for that sin or I pay for it. Either Bob is going to make me pay for it or he's going to forgive me. And so, but 
but Larry can't pay for that sin, and Larry can't forgive me. This is between me and Bob, and so it can't be like, well, Bob, Bob decides to take it out on Larry, and so now it's paid for. No. Also, Larry can't be like, Mitch, I forgive you for that sin against Bob. That's not how it works. This is between me and Bob. This is a wrong I've done to him, and so either he's going to pay for it, or I'm going to pay for it. And so if Jesus is a third party, you know, there's us, there's God, then there's Jesus, and somehow he ends up paying for our sin, it doesn't work, because this is a sin between us and between God. And so only God, either God pays for it, or we pay for it. And as the Son of God, Jesus is fully God, and so he's the one who has been sinned against. And because he has been sinned against, he can pay for a sinner's sin through forgiveness. And because the, the Son of God has paid for our sins, God does not count our sins against us. When people say that the cross was divine child abuse, they're, they're seeing Jesus as a third party to the situation rather than the offended party in the situation, that he is fully God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our God is a trinity. The, but Jesus is the offended party, the party who has been wronged and sinned against. And so he can pay for our sin. And Jesus has done everything to make our reconciliation with God possible. All we have to do say, I'll give you my sin, and then say, I'll take your righteousness. And we surrender to Jesus uh, by the Spirit working in us when we move from saying, Jesus died for sinners, to Jesus, to Jesus died for me. Jesus didn't just die for sinners or die for sin, but Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus took my place. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. He wasn't on that cross for him. He was on that cross dying for the sake of me, not just people out there in general. This is when it goes from theory to reality. And my hope is, as we're in this three-week series, is that we will be able to be amazed and astounded by that and filled with thankfulness. And the gift exchange between us and Christ is what makes reconciliation possible. We show up to the party with the worst gift ever. He shows up to the party with the best gift ever. And he says, yeah, I'll take your gift, and I'm going to give you this. And that's the gift exchange that takes place. He willingly and lovingly takes our gift of sinfulness, and willingly and lovingly gives us the gift of righteousness. And so though we are guilty as charged, we walk away declared righteous and innocent because Jesus serves our sentence in our place for what we have done. And this is why it's the greatest gift exchange ever, because it's so lopsided. I mean, it's the greatest gift exchange for us, but it's so lopsided. So there's three things we can take from this passage. First, we are reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. If you surrender to Jesus, God is not your enemy. God is not against you, ever. He is only ever for you and not against you. You've been reconciled. He does not count your trespasses against you. If you could just list out all the things you've ever done in your life. I mean, if there was like a, um, you know, a projector screen here and list out all the trespasses and sins that I have committed in my life, you all would be like, wow, he's a pretty messed up person. And the reality is that God would not count any of that against me. Because Jesus took it in our place. You're totally free. You've been washed white as snow. And God did the hard part of forgiveness. What makes forgiveness so hard is that these things are all true of God. That he did this. That 
Jesus gave up his rights. It cost him. He's let, he lets go of it. We don't deserve any of it, and yet we're, he's giving it to us. Christ, you know, think about this. Christ took your place for the worst things you've done. And Christ took your place for the repeated small or medium things that you've done over and over and over and over again. And sometimes we may think, well, I'm a big sinner because I've done this really bad thing. Or we may feel like, I'm a big sinner because I just keep doing this thing over and over and the same things over and over. They're not that big, but I just keep doing them over and over. You know, big things are like betraying a friend or cheating on a spouse. But doing the same thing over and over again is also another way to really hurt somebody. But what we've done is we've done the worst things over and over again, betraying and cheating on God, and we've also done a multiple of small things over and over again. But Jesus stood in my place for my worst sins I've ever done. Jesus stood in your place for the worst things you've ever done. He paid for it all, and that is the cost. Jesus became sin. He became my sin. He became your sin. He became our sin. And so first we're reconciled to God. Second, we are reconcilers. We are reconcilers. Those who are reconciled become reconcilers. And this works itself out in two ways. First, uh, in our personal relationships, we are to be reconcilers and forgivers. When people wrong us, uh, we are supposed to be the kind of people who are ready and willing to forgive. And maybe even eager to forgive. We're not to seek payback for what others have done. We're not to count their trespasses against them. But this is what makes forgiveness so hard, right? All these things, this is what makes forgiveness so hard. Is that, but they deserve it. Somebody should be angry at them. I can't let go of this. It's my right. You should be punished. You can't treat me like this. That's what makes it so hard. Is that they need to be held accountable for this. They should have to pay for this. They should know the wrong they've done, and other people should know it too, and they should have to do something to make it right. They can't just get away with this. Forgiveness is hard because there's always a cost involved for the one doing the forgiving. The offended party pays the cost of the other person's offense against us. And that's what makes it so hard. But we are probably, it's one of the times that we are most like God. And we are most expressing God's character is when we can say, I forgive you and not count their trespasses against them. And I've heard, we kind of got to it a little bit in what we were saying here, uh, is that I've heard forgiveness described as giving up the right to get even. Giving up the right to get even. Or surrendering your right to repayment for the wrong. And verse 9 gives us a good definition too. Or probably verse 19. Forgiveness means not counting their trespasses against them. And this is what makes it so hard. It's costly. It's painful. It feels unfair. And what makes us able to forgive others for the terrible things they've done to us, the painful things they've done to us, is because we have been forgiven for so much. God's forgiveness enables us to forgive others. And we will never out-forgive God. He will always have forgiven us for more than what we are forgiving others of. 